As means of introduction to our Genesis series, uh, the origin, the foundation of the revelation of God. I took us to verse 1 last week, and it's in verse 1 that we learned the need to get under the skin of a passage, specifically to understand the original Hebrew context, the original Hebrew words, because what we have in our Bible is an English translation. And it's not the original text because the original text is in Hebrew. And so it's important for us to get under the skin of it to understand the context. It's in this one verse last week that we saw that God exclusively creates. With his creation, you and me resign to simply making, molding, shaping, designing, but never ourselves creating because everything that has been created has already been created by God. Uh, so today we treat verse 1 as the foundation of the foundations. Uh, Genesis, the book, is the origin. Genesis 1 is the foundation. Genesis 1.1 is our foundation of foundations we come from. And it really, it tells us everything. It tells us who the creator is, that it being Elohim, God's. It tells us who, what was created, the heavens and the earth. And it tells us when it was created in the beginning, which literally means at the beginning. And that beginning onwards had an undefined period, but there was no expanse of time before the beginning. At the beginning, all was created. And we're going to approach our passages today a little bit differently than how I would normally approach passages. If you're known to LBC or you've been listening online, you know that I tend to go verse by verse through the passage. We're not going to do that this morning. We'll, we'll kind of do a little bit of that later. But what I'm going to do is split our time into three sections. Uh, the first will be a teaching overview of the various key theories of creation. I want to be very clear. It is an overview. I'm not going to go into depth on every single one. If you want to go into depth, uh, head to our house groups this week. They'll be looking into our new Dig Deeper questions, and they'll be looking into some of these theories. If you don't want to join a house group or are unable to, the questions will be available online, and you can do some self-study through the week. Uh, but the second, I'm going to take us to then marvel at creation. I think we can get so complex into the theories that we forget to even just look at the words and see the beauty of creation. And then thirdly, as we always do, we'll take time to apply it to our lives so that we're not just going out with more understanding, we're going out with wisdom, being able to take that understanding and making it shape and mold our lives. And I hope to answer two questions. <laughs> They're the two controversial questions of Genesis 1. How was everything created? And how old is creation? How was everything created? The second, how old is creation? That is what I'm hoping to do today is answer these two questions. Uh, so let's delve into the teaching overview first. Last week we had verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now naturally, verse two follows. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we established last week that verse 1 had bereshith, the Hebrew word for in the beginning. And we learned that it doesn't give room for an expanse of time. When it says in the beginning, there was dot and it started. There was no expanse of time. Yet that is not the only place where people have argued that there is an expanse of time in the creation narrative. Now, remember, we need an allowance of an expanse of time if we're to match creation with the popular belief that the earth is billions of years old. Uh, the dominant view amongst secular uh, scientists and secular individuals, and to some extent, 
is creeping into the church as well, is Darwinism through natural selection. It argues that there is a movement from a simpler to a complex form of life. And to go from the simpler to the complex, there needs to be a period of time to allow this. And this is ultimately the dominant view, that you need to take something simple, a whole expanse of time before it becomes complex. And that is why you have to search in the text to find billions of years. And I want you to pay very close attention to the full stop between verse 1 and verse 2. And I want you not to worry. I know last week I did word for word. I'm not going punctuation to punctuation this week. Um, you know, there might be time for that. But I want in this, in this full stop, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth full stop. In this one full stop, a Scottish theologian in the 1700s called Thomas Chalmers brought what is commonly known as the gap theory, but it's also known as the ruin and reconstruction theory. The theory states that there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2, and that gap is found in the full stop. The theory states that with this gap, Lucifer fell, God brought judgment, and creation was destroyed. Then in verse 2, we are met with what is left, a formless and void earth. In some senses, it's an easy theory to get behind because the gap can consist of any length of period of time and any question that goes unanswered can just fall into the gap. Why? Because you can't argue. No one knows. It's a full stop. So you just throw it all into the gap. Yet there are problems that mean we cannot, in theory, actually support the gap theory. And both come from biblical text. I want you to see something very clear this morning. I'm not going to go anywhere else but the Bible to answer the questions. So why can't we support the gap theory? Well, I want you to look at Romans 5.12 on the screen. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I want you to notice where death enters and where it occurs. It occurs when man sinned. See that phrase, and death through sin. A death cannot exist in the so-called gap theory because it contradicts Romans 5, because death didn't appear in our text until Genesis 3. But the second reason we can't support the gap theory is found actually in verse 2, and I think this is a stronger reason that we can look at. Here's verse 2 again. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth we see in verse 2 is without form. I realize I pushed you on a bit too quickly. It was without form, which comes from the Hebrew word tohu, a perfect yet unformed and incomplete earth. It was also void, coming from the Hebrew word bohu, which literally means empty, containing nothing. So tohu a perfect yet unformed earth, and bohu, literally meaning empty. And another Hebrew word is really important. If you've got the King James Version with you today, is the Hebrew word, and you know, depending if you're Scottish, it's wa, and if you're anybody else, it might be wa, uh, whichever way you want to pronounce it, w-a-w, which literally translates as the English word and. And the King James Version writes it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form. 
I think the King James uh, rightly puts this and here, and it's actually future modern text that removes the and. The Hebrew word word wa, beginning at verse 2, means there is a sequential, chronological, and correct order. So in the beginning, and. And what you're going to see as we go through Genesis 1, it will go and, 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 and it's sequential and ordered. We met this in our Mark's Gospel series, where we had immediately an and. It talks about something that flows into the next. So what we have in verse 2, if you've already got lost, is verse 2 invalidates the gap theory, and this is why. Because the word and shows an immediate after verse 1 into verse 2. The word tahu says that there was no form to the earth, meaning there was no substance to it, it was just basic matter. And bahu, meaning empty, means there were no fossils, no sediments, nothing. It was unformed and void. And I want you to see that this is all coming from the Hebrew language. I haven't added anything in, haven't taken anything out. Wa, tohu, and bohu tells us that verse 2 is immediately after verse 1, and in verse 2 we have basic matter with nothing that could be deemed as evidence for any form of age or any form of evidence to date it. And I think it's amazing that the words that God divinely chose to use actually gives us understanding of the truth. In the beginning, and this is what it looked like in the beginning and it was formless and in the beginning it was void there was nothing there so if better sheath in verse one can't provide a time period for billions of years and the full stop known as the gap theory can't provide this time period either are we now able to refute this dominant view that the world is billions of years old well not quite Verse 1 and 2 can't provide it, but maybe verse 3 through 25 that uh, Nick wonderfully read to us earlier can. And it's in these verses that we're now able to use a framework to see the main theories of creation. The main theories are the age view, the literary framework, the analogical day view, and the regular six day view. And if you're already lost, don't worry, so was I when I was writing this, but we will get there together. Now, throughout Genesis 1, the English word day, coming from the Hebrew word yom, is used 10 times. At the beginning of forming and occupying the formless and void earth, God separated the light and the darkness, calling the light day, being the Hebrew word yom, and the darkness night. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the day Hebrew word yom, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Again, the Hebrew word yom. Now this word yom is used in scripture over 200 times. And like verses three to five, in nearly nearly all circumstances, the word yom refers to a single day. And to be clear, a 24 hour day. Yet in the first of our creation theories, the day age theory, Uh, proponents take yom as representing a long period of time. The essence of the view is that this brings creation in line with science, and that science affirms that yom in Genesis 1 represents a long period of time. Therefore, this must be the correct translation. The sequential nature still stands in that these six periods come one after the other. 
But the main evidence that's used for this is that yom is used in some context in the Old Testament to mean slightly longer periods of time. In Joshua 24, it talks about a season, and in Genesis 30, it talks about the harvest. I want to be very clear, though, when it talks about yom in these circumstances, it is still relatively short periods of time. You're talking days, weeks, possibly years, but certainly not billions of years. Now, Henry Morris, I recommended his book last week, makes it clear that no matter what your view on this is, there will always be an implication to what you believe. In this case, to support the day age theory that yom is long periods of time, which means you can have six long periods of time, which means you could have potential billions of years in creation, means you must also support multiple generations of plants and animals that live, die, and potentially become extinct. Therefore, decay and death exist. Why? Because long periods of time exist. And if death and decay exist, then not only have we seen in Romans 5 that that's not possible because that comes in Genesis 3, but I think something is even more important to see here is that God deemed it good. At each point, he said it was good. So if we hold to the form of Dei's theory and there's decay and death before Genesis 3, then we are somehow saying that God views that decay and death as good. In questioning and therefore changing this meaning of yom to long periods of time in Genesis 1, the day-age view challenges the fall of Genesis 3 where death enters, the teachings of Romans 5 that death enters in Genesis 3, but fundamentally the entire salvation plan. Because if decay and death in long periods of times is good, then why must we be saved from death? Because is that not a natural blessing that God has deemed as good? I don't think any of us will see that. I don't think any of us see that God views death as good. If the day-age view comes unstuck by its implication, is death really good? What about the second, that of the literary framework view? Proponents argue that Genesis 1 is not a historical narrative, but it's a literary piece of work. It gives an artistic expression of creation. It's poetic in nature, possibly even a hymn that we can sing. In this manner, Genesis 1 is not factual, but almost a fictional presentation, which is less concerned of how creation came to be, but more concerned about the who. Who created? Well, this is God, and this could be the way he created it. Therefore, creation could be as old or as young as you like, because Genesis 1 is not meant to be representing facts, but the artistic expression of it. Yet nearly every commentator, and I read several this week, say the same thing. The Hebrew language used in Genesis 1 is written as factual and historical statements. There is no change in the Hebrew language between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It is the same style of language. Therefore, there is limited scope to say that Genesis 1 is artistic in nature, or it's an expression in nature. The words used tell of facts in ordered manners, in a chronological sequence. And of course, as I said last week, I do actually think there's merit in this view. I think the merit is that we somehow get lost in the detail. Maybe you're already lost, but we get lost in the detail and we lose the wonder of creation and the picture that's painted for us in Genesis 1. But I think it would be naive to say that Genesis 1 is purely an artistic expression. Because if that's true, then ultimately we know nothing about the created world. 
Because everything we read in Genesis 1 is a story with no factual evidence. Of course, uh, our first two creation theories we see by implication of believing them, we have to accept one thing and deny another thing. If we accept the literary framework, and therefore we're accepting that it's a fictional artistic expression, possibly even poetic or possibly a song, then we also, by accepting that, reject that it's factual. And if we reject that it's factual, then where do we stop? What point of the Bible would you like to reject next? And so if our first two creation theories, by implication of what we believe, don't provide enough concrete thinking and evidence for an expanse of time to fit billions of years in, what about the third theory, the analogical view, which is a common view to hold. I think actually probably several in this room would in some form of way uh, get behind this type of view. In this view, days are not human days, but God days. In that they're similar, they can be described as yom, but they're distinctly different. The way God works and rests isn't necessarily the same that we work and rest. Or for some of us who struggle resting, <laughs> the day seven is always quite hard for some of us. Pray for me, Mondays is my day seven, rarely. Um, but what we see here is still the days are seen as sequential, they're chronological, they potentially overlap, but they represent a God day, an undefined period of time. Often used here is a verse taken completely out of context. Its correct context refers to the return of Jesus, but it's used here to explain this view. And you can see why. 2 Peter 3.8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Again, I want to say the context of this verse is to not allow long periods of time in creation, but to show that the Lord is patient in his timing before sending the second return of Jesus. But even if you were to take this verse and use it out of its context, a day is like a thousand years. Not billions of years, but a thousand years. I'll leave you to mull over that. But those that hold to this view tend to have a significant problem with a literal six-day creation. For it takes time for plants to grow, waters to flow, and the earth to be packed with fossils and levels of sediment. So the question that often comes is why God would deceive us by making something young, a day old, look much older. Yet what we're going to see as we go through the passage soon is that God every, made everything mature. Animals were mature. Plants, and I want you to see this when we go through the passage, plants, not seeds, were created. The plants had seeds, but it wasn't the seed that was created. It was the plants and even Adam and Eve were made mature. If you always want to know what came first, the chicken or the egg, read Genesis 1. What came first? God made everything mature. The chicken. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but this view is that there was a time needed for things to mature, and therefore God has to have a different day than we do. But if we actually believe, Genesis 1, that everything was made mature, then there was no time needed. For in an instant, God created. Speaking of the omnipotence of God, he has the power to create things mature that looks old by just a simple command. There's no deception here. I think this is the really interesting thing, is that people say, well, it's one day old, but he makes it look millions of years old. No, no, no. God created everything exactly how he wanted it to look. 
There was no deception. There was no, by the way, this is a day old, but it's meant to look millions of years old. No, no, no. This is what I've created, and it's to look like this, and it's to be celebrated like this. This is how God wanted his world to look. So you see, in questioning Bereshith in verse 1, in trying to bring about gap theory heading into verse 2, in trying to explain Yom through three different models, each time the proponents must argue against something that is written in verse 1 through 25. Yeah, what I want to show you today is that I think we've got this the wrong way around. Because I think what we're trying to do is take Genesis 1 and fit it with the world-dominant view. But I think we've got to take the world-dominant view and somehow fit it into Genesis 1. Because where are we going to start with something that only really is a few hundred years old or from the eternal Word of God? And I'm going to show you that the regular six-day theory has problems with the dominant view but nothing in Scripture. But every other theory has no problems in the world, but has significant issues in the text. So what does Genesis 1 actually tell us? Well, we see six regular days coming from the Hebrew word yom. They are consecutive, they're chronological, and there is no overlap. As one ends, the next begins. We see in verse 1 a description of creation. Then in verse 2 we see that condition of immediately after, as God spoke them into being, what it looked like immediately. It was formless and void, tohu and bohu. And then in verse 3 through 25 we see God organizing his creation and further creating everything that would inhabit it. It's simple, yet it's wonderful. And some will say, I don't know if God can do that. Why would he do it? Why would he have six days? Surely it needs to, the dominant view says this, and what about this, what about this? But I think if we just read the text as Yom is one 24-hour day, we see a powerful display of God's preeminence over all of creation. He can speak it, and it happens. He can have the design, and it looks exactly how it is meant to be. This power that is on display is the same power that spoke to the Red Sea and separated it instantly. It's the same power that commanded a big fish to swallow Jonah and keep him alive. The same power that allowed a virgin to conceive. And the same power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when even a human dead body was told, come alive again. Do you not see that if we doubt Genesis 1 and the power and ability of God to create everything in six days, we're ultimately doubting everything else that God has done. Nature and all within it comes under the control and command of God. If you've ever read Jonah 1 and 2, which is what we teach in Sunday school, you're always a bit shocked at Jonah 3 and 4 because Jonah turns out to be an arrogant, annoying guy in Jonah 3 and 4. If you don't know, read Jonathan, uh, Jonah 3 and 4 and you're going to soon find out. But what does God do? He said, plant, grow, plant, die. What happened? Plant grew, plant died. So why can't God do that in Genesis 1? And here's the wonderful thing. Do you know what the only issue is with this viewpoint? The world doesn't like it. That's it. Now, you can argue with me all day long that young could mean an extended period of time, but I'm going to keep coming back to the text. What does it say? It says a day. Why do we need it to be more than a day? 
Now, having said all this, you can clearly tell what theory I believe in. Uh, one thing I said to somebody this week is there's lots of theories here. None of us were at creation. I don't look that old. Uh, none of us were at creation. So we do still have to hold these things in loose hands, okay? I'm not going to say here, if you don't believe in the regular six-day theory, that you don't believe in the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I think when we take the dominant view and we just chuck it off to the side and we just look at the text, I think we can get a regular six-day theory. So having said this, I'm going to say this, how old is creation? Well, over the years, there has been much debate and disagreement. However, biblical data combined with creation narrative can help us. And again, Henry Morris has been fantastic in his book, The Genesis Record, with this. Genesis 1 tells us of creation to man. Genesis 5 tells us from man to the great flood. Genesis 11 tells us from flood to Abraham. And if we just ignore creation for a moment, Archbishop James Usher collated all this data and considering even the potential discrepancy in dating and calendar years, he dates creation back to somewhere between 4,000 BC and 10,000 BC, with more of the evidence pointing to 4,000, just giving more discrepancy allowance to get to the 10,000. means we can trace back to the point of creation 6,000 years and get to creation. If we take a six literal day, then we have a young earth. We have 6,000 years plus seven days. We don't end up with billions of years. We end up with a relatively young earth. We arrive at that with no outside influence from a dominant view. Things needed to uh, take time to grow? No, they don't. God made them mature. What about the sun coming in later on day four? Don't worry about that. God is light. He brings all energy that's needed. What about yom, meaning other things in the Bible? Great. God is a literary master. Now, having taken you through all these teaching overviews and having probably half the room seething that I've taken you to a regular six day and half the room cheering, let us not get bogged down in the theories. Let us do a wonderful thing now and let us go through the passage and enjoy the splendor and majesty and glory of God on display here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through it. I'm going to give a little narration as we go. So have your Bibles in front of you as I do this, because I think this is incredibly important as we, we get lost in the wonder of creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When God, in his perfect timing, decided to create, he created everything, the earth, the space, the entire cosmos. The earth began without form, and it was void of anything living. The Spirit of God, coming from the Hebrew word ruah, to mean the wind or breath of God, hovered over this formless and void matter. Spirit is ready to act, is ready to energize creation. But where is the command of God? For spirit and word must work together. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. You see, the word of God for the first time in Scripture. You want to see this? The first time in Scripture, God's voice calls out. Don't lose that moment. God's voice calls out for the first time in Scripture, and it brings forth light. The Father, the source of creation, the Spirit energizing creation, and the word of God revealing new creation, all working together. The word of God calls what is not there into being. Nothing exists without that call. The darkness, it's not removed, but it's separated from the light. The light is named day, the Hebrew word yom, and the dark is called night. 
There was evening, there was morning. The first day of creation is complete. And I want you to notice this pattern, this wonderful pattern. God will create light in the day and then all will be quiet in the dark. Watch that pattern as we go through creation. During the day, creation. During the night, God stays silent. With day one complete, what happens on day two? Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or the sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Creation at this point is mainly water. God spoke and some of that water is taken out of this great mass and it's separated out. This water would be called heaven or better translated space or cosmos or expanse. It'll be an expanse like a canopy that will thinly stretch over all of creation. It'll provide an atmosphere. Oxygen will flow. Precipitation will fall. God said it and it was so. There was evening and then there was morning. The second day is complete. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appeared. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Again, God spoke and the water below the expanse began to separate into great chunks of land rising from the depth of creation. The shoreless water soon found itself separated into multiple seas, yet it remained one body of water. The land begins to form great mountains tower. Poor Lincolnshire had flatlands having the water lap its edge. Wonderful Scotland has great Ben Nevis. <laughs> the formless land is no more. It had shape, it had contours, it had land, it had sea verse 11 and God said let the earth sprout vegetation plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth and it was so the earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day the land was covered in fertile soil Again, wonderful Scotland had plenty of it. And so when God spoke vegetation, plants, remember? The land and the plants grew from this fertile soil. They were fully grown. They were developed, each containing seeds of their own. Have you ever had a pack of seeds at home and it splits and you think, oh, what's going to grow here? God knew every plant and every seed, each to their own kind. The earth, no longer void, no longer empty. Plants of all kinds covered the land, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning. The third day is complete. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Notice that. The big sun and the moon. Oh, and the stars too. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. God spoke 
And there was not just one light, but two great lights. The greater light produces the light that shines through the day, and the lesser light reflects it so that in the darkness there is a glow across the earth. And let's not forget the billions of stars just spoken into existence, covering the sky with twinkling lights. Creation in all its beauty, no longer formless, no longer void, is lit up, and God saw that it was good. Evening and morning, the fourth day is complete. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea and creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God spoke and the waters that are now separated into seas swarm suddenly with living creatures, both small and large. Maybe the great fish, maybe the great fish that would swallow Jonah. Hey, maybe, maybe there, who knows? Then God spoke and the sky was full of birds flying and soaring all around. These creatures were not just for beauty though. Notice this. They were commanded to grow in number, to multiply, to fill the skies, to fill the seas. Because God built into creation, I think this is wonderful, a principle of newness and creativity that would flow forevermore. The earth God created was not just for show. It was to be lived in. It was to be a home for creation. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God spoke and the earth was inhabited by livestock, by creeping things and by great beasts. There was domestic animals, wild animals, animals so small you could barely see them. Each was mature. But wait, look where they come from. A wonderful, wonderful fact. Where do the beasts come from? Let the earth bring forth. The formless and void, empty earth in verse 2 is now bringing forth life in livestock and animals. No longer empty, creation is teeming with life and God saw it was good. But you'll notice no evening and morning have come yet because God has an incredible act of creation still to go and you have to come back next week for us to talk about that. Is the word of God not incredible? Isn't it not fantastic that the earth, this just formless matter, just produces these wonderful things? If you don't believe in the beauty of creation, get out of Lincolnshire and head to Scotland for a holiday. <laughs> I know my time is well and truly up, but let me just give you two very, very quick points on what we can do with this this week. Number one, the authority of Scripture. If we start with anything else but Scripture, we have wild and fantastical interpretations. We're molded and shaped not by God, by whatever we give authority to. Yet if we start with the authority of Scripture that was divinely written through human agents, then we get truth in all of its glory. The Word of God has the power to hold things together, the power to create, and then the power to stand on itself. 
If Genesis 1 has taught you anything, and, and I do pray that you at least take this home, Scripture should always take final authority in our lives. Not the world, not the latest thinking, not the dominant view, not well-respected individuals, but God's words. Scripture has authority in creation. God spoke and it appeared. And therefore, Scripture should have authority in the way we think and the way we act and in the way we speak. And finally, the supremacy of God. Many people over many years have searched for the God particle. Folks, I want to tell you today that God himself is the God particle. It was God that decided to create. It was God who energized creation. It's God that spoke everything into being that existed. It was God that commanded the plants and creatures to multiply. It was God that commanded Moses to write all these words down so that today we could proclaim them as truth. So if this is the one thing I leave you with, God is supreme in all things. So here's your question to mull over this week. Is he supreme in your life? Let's pray. Father, your word is truly wonderful. I just think of those little words, oh, and the stars. Who are we to ever moan, where is God? Who are we to ever say, God, you seem so far away. We just need to look to the sky and, oh, the stars. Father, I pray that the wonder of creation would be evident in our lives. Father, we pray that the authority and supremacy that we see in Genesis 1 would be evident in our faith. And Father, I'm very conscious that as we read through this, creation doesn't look as nice as it looked when you created it. It's tarnished. Death covers it. Our human society breaks it. Father, we are so sorry for what we have done to your creation. Father, I'm on no high horse here. I have no agenda here. We pray that you forgive us for what we have done to the beautiful, wonderful, majestic creation that you created for us. But Father, in that, we hope for the day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth and you will do this again. And in it, we get to see it happening because for the faithful in Christ, we'll be caught up into the new heaven and the new earth and we will live in eternal glory with you. So Father, I pray for everyone listening online, for everyone here today, that as we walk out the doors today, not only did we learn last week that we mean something to God, but this week we mean a beautiful, beautiful creation to God. And so, Father, we pray that our lives would reflect that. Let us not hold to dominant views. Let us not hold to what the world will slander us against. Because, Father, we simply hold to one thing, the authority and supremacy of God. I pray this in your name. Amen.